Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. In Revelation 1 verse 8, the Apostle John quotes the Lord as saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Doing our due diligence and study, we must ask ourselves which member of the Godhead said this, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, or all three. Today we unpack this statement as we continue our expository study of Revelation. Here is Pastor Alex. All right, so we will pick up and continue our study in the book of Revelation. And we do find ourselves in verse 8. And the title of our study today is The Alpha and the Omega. Have you guys started to sense a little pattern here? Did you know that the titles of our messages are the themes in the scripture that we're covering? And if you ask me, I think that's the most appropriate um, to let the scripture tell you what the title is because within that, that text, there are some themes or some sub-themes, and that is what we've been gleaning on this whole time. And when we find ourselves in verse 8, there is this very familiar statement, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Are you familiar with that phrase? Are you familiar with who said that? Somewhat? Jesus? Okay. Well, there's even more. <laughs> there's even more in this verse as we will see and we're going to break them up and see what can we find Uh, but because we are just in verse 8 it'll be good for us to go ahead and let's read revelation 1 verse 1 and we'll read till verse 8 and then we'll pick it up in verse 8 so john writes and i'm reading from the nas the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show his bond servants the things which must soon take place And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So let's pick it up in verse 8, shall we? And it's a pretty compact verse. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So what we'll do is we're going to look at verse 8. We're going to break it up in four parts. We're going to look at the statement, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and what that's about the Lord God. We're going to also look at who is and who was and who is to come. And then lastly, we're going to look at the Almighty. So let's look at the first part of our verse, shall we? I am the Alpha and the Omega. And you'll notice in a lot of your English translations that verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, is in quotes. And as we've customarily done is 
Let's try to figure out who in the Trinity is speaking. I can tell you this, and I've mentioned this before, and we started this practice when we studied 1 John. There's a lot of him, he, and what we found was when you put the person of the Trinity into the, you know, the verse that he's speaking about, it actually open, opens up and helps us even understand the relationship between the Godhead and now our relationship between the different persons of the Godhead. So we're going to continue to do that in this statement, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And this is what we're going to find. You know, there's a, a lot of layers in Scripture. There's a lot of layers. And when we've covered just up to verse 8, we've seen even just some of those layers and we started unpacking, you're like, wow, that is behind that statement. Well, lo and behold, that is not different in this verse. So some of your Bibles, they attempt to put Jesus' words in red. So does that settle it? I can tell you this, as a baby Christian, I loved Jesus' words in red. I loved it. I, I, I looked forward for the red. How come the Father doesn't get a color? Why is it? just Jesus. So now I'm, I'm torn. I know it could be helpful, but also at the same time, it kind of, I don't know, maybe amplifies, you know, one person over another person of the Trinity. And so what we'll see is, okay, the one who's saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, is it, is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you agree? Yeah, right? Thoughts, anyone? Well, let's see what we can find out. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So this person of the Trinity is making this statement. And I am is Amy. And it's the very familiar statement that Jesus would have often described himself. And Amy, I am, it means that, you know, I am. I, I, am, I exist. You know, I remain. I, I, am be, you know, I am being. And this is the familiar statement Jesus often used to describe himself. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the living bread. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These are just some of the descriptions that Jesus would apply the I am statement to himself. So should we just add Alpha and Omega to the list? I am the Alpha and the Omega. You add that to the list of titles given to the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we do that, we need to reconcile the other I am. Who is that? Well, let's pick it up in Matthew 22, verse 31. And here Jesus is speaking. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am, Amy, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So who is the I am, the God of Abraham? I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And how can we know that? Because Jesus is speaking, and he says, he is not the God of the living. So Jesus is speaking in the third person. So he, the I am, is the Father. So the Father is the I am, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So we have another I am. 
So we're like, okay. So I am, or me, it can be applied to both the Father and the Son. So to determine who's speaking in verse 8, well, let's at least consider the context. And we're not very far. We're in verse 8. So in verses 1 and 2, we learn that God the Father gave the revelation to Jesus the Son, who gave the vision to an angel, and the angel delivered the message to John. When we get to verse 4, we learn that from him who is and who was and who is to come was speaking of God the Father. In verses 5 and 6, both the Father and Jesus were spoken of. And when we get to verse 7, which we just covered right before this verse, Jesus was the primary subject. You know, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That was speaking about Jesus. But because the Father and the Son are intertwined in verses 1 through 7, who's speaking in verse 8? It's still not clear. So we're going to have to look at this a little closer. No worry, we're going to go somewhere with this. Well, let's look at now, well, the Alpha and the Omega. Well, the Alpha is, is literally the Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. And the Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So it's like A to Z in our English um, dictionary, right? The first letter and the last letter. But here's the brownie points except Jeremy. What is the first and last letter in the Hebrew alphabet? Anyone want to take a guess? The Aleph and the top. So some brownie points there. And, you know, when I, when I, when I try to look, um, you know, I was trying to look to see, okay, at least for me, what was behind this statement? Is there anything more besides being, call, you know, calling himself, you know, the, the, this person of the Trinity saying, I am the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter. And, of course, there's probably many commentaries out there that will take a stab at that. I'm going to resist that at this point because, at least for me, I haven't come across that you know, maybe what may be behind it, what it could be, and this is just something I'm leaving on, on the side, is when, like, for example, when we're talking about calculating the name of the beast and the number of his name, well, I'm going to be steered towards the Greek because Jesus, or the Father, we don't know who that is yet, is attributing himself to the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So I'm just kind of keeping that on the back of my mind. But as far as the phrase or the title, the Alpha and the Omega, this is the only book in which this person of the Trinity applies this title to himself. And there's only three times it was mentioned in this book. So we'll look at the other two mentions. So let's look at the other two mentions. Uh, When we get towards the end of the book in Revelation 21, here's what it says there. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, his Theos, and he will be my son. Now let me ask you guys a question. In Revelation 21.6, who's speaking here? Which person of the Trinity is saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega? the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost, and he who comes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Which person of the Trinity is speaking here? And why would you say the Father? (laughs) I did see that note there. It's not in red. Oh, so that settles it, right? Because in the actual ancient manuscripts, they got red ink when Jesus spoke. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. How do we know it's the Father? I'll say this, you're right. But how do you know in this verse? There is one description. 
he will be my son. The Father is speaking. We're not Jesus' son. We're Jesus' brothers and sisters, family. But there's only one Father and one Lord, right? One faith, one baptism. Kind of makes sense. In Revelation 21.6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Father is speaking here. And the way we know that is he says, if you overcome these things, I'll give you the right to drink from the spring of the water of life. And he goes, and I will be his God and he will be my son. That's the Father. So the other mention was in towards even the end of this book, Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Okay, if it wasn't in red, what person of the Trinity is speaking here? Jesus. Okay. Why do we know that this is Jesus? Here's a clue. To render to every man. Now, let me ask you a question. Is the Father going to judge anybody? God the Father, is He judging anybody? What does the Scripture tell us? He's given that responsibility to Jesus. So who's going to render to every man what he has done? The Lord Jesus Christ. So the, in these examples, the Alpha and the Omega is shared between the Father and the Son. So just as I am, the, you know, Amy can be applied to the Father and the Son depending on context, so Alpha and Omega can be applied to the Father or the Son too. So we're not really getting anywhere, are we? But the Father and the Son are sharing these titles. So we got to keep digging. And I trust that this exercise and you know, these disciplines, when we get to difficult passages in Scripture, these little things become big things. And it actually opens up the text. So this is a good practice for, for all of us. So let's just continue to dig. Okay, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It could be the Father and the Son at this point. They're still both in play. So let's look at what this person of the Trinity says after claiming to be the Alpha and the Omega. He says, says the Lord God. Okay. So whoever is claiming to be the Alpha and the Omega is also claiming to be the Lord God. So let's look at the Lord God. Lord is kurios, and it also means master. And God is theos, which is the common rendering of God. And I've noted this in, in prior studies in the Old Testament, when you see Lord, capital L-O-R-D, you know, Yahweh, that refers to God the Father. In the New Testament, the common rendering of God is Theos. And I'll just say this, that generally refers to God the Father. So we're going to need to look to Scripture to tell us, okay, which person of the Trinity is attributed the title of the curious Theos? So does anyone want to take a stab at that before we go? Who is the curious Theos? Who's the Lord God? The Father? Is it anyone else besides the Father? Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. So let's go to the New Testament and see, okay, who is, who bears this title, the Lord God? And we'll go to Luke's account. And in this account, the angel Gabriel was delivering the message to Mary that she's going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And let's pick it up in verse 32. He will be called the Son of the Most High, 
And the Lord God, the Kyrios Theos, will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now allow me to insert the persons of the Trinity in Luke 1, 32 and 33. See if this reads a little better. Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, God the Father. And the Lord God, God the Father, will give Jesus the throne of Jesus' father David, and Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and Jesus' kingdom will have no end. So in Luke 1, in this passage, the Kyrios Theos is God the Father. And the Kyrios Theos is applied to the Father also in other New Testament passages. And I'm going to look at at least one more. And this is in Acts 3. And this is Peter's second sermon. So after the great sermon he had where thousands of Jews were, you know, repented and, and believed. We'll pick it up in verse 22. Moses said, he quotes Moses here, the Lord God, the Kyrios Theos, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. So let's insert the persons of the Trinity in Acts 3.22. Moses said, The Lord God, the Kyrios Theos, God the Father, will raise up for you a prophet, Jesus, like me from your brethren. To him, to Jesus, shall give heed to everything he, Jesus, says to you. So the Kyrios Theos, the Lord God, in Acts 3.22 is God the Father, and Jesus is the prophet in this verse. So, okay, so, so far we have the Alpha and the Omega is the Father and the Son. Now the Lord God, right now it's, we're finding Scripture verses that saying it's speaking of God the Father. So does that mean that God the Father is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God in verse 8? Well, it's not that simple. Because <laughs> Why? Because Lord or Kurios is also applied to Jesus. So when John the Baptist introduces Jesus, he introduces him as Lord, as Kurios. And let me read that account, Matthew 3, 2 and 3. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, Kurios. Make his path straight. So who is the curious here? Who is John the Baptist saying, make, make way, make his path straight? Who is he introducing? Jesus. And John the Baptist is introducing Jesus as curious. And now Jesus himself applies this title of curious to himself in Matthew 7, the very familiar passage there. We'll pick it up in verse 21. Jesus speaking, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or Kyrios, Kyrios, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Kyrios, Kyrios, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jesus applied the title of Kyrios to himself. And he does it again later in Matthew 12. And Jesus speaking there, verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord, or Kyrios, of the Sabbath. 
So John the Baptist applied the title of Kyrios to Jesus. Jesus applied the title of Kyrios to himself. And I just kind of you know, went through the Gospels. But here's just some other people. Who else called Jesus the Kyrios? Peter, the Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed. A man who had, uh, whose son had epilepsy and was very ill. The man with leprosy. Two blind men. The crowds uttering Hosanna. You know when the crowds on Palm, you know, that Palm Day, when they were waving branches, the crowds were uttering Hosanna, and they were attributing the title of Kyrios to Jesus. Uh, his mother Mary attributed or called him Kyrios. Angels, demons, the rest of his disciples. There, these are just examples of those in the Gospels that apply the title of Kyrios to Jesus. But I do want to call out one particular call out of Kyrios being applied to Jesus, and that was from our beloved, the Apostle Paul, in his popular Philippians 2 passage. Let me read that to us. Pick it up in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Curios to the glory of God the Father. Are you ready for me to reread this with the persons of the Trinity? And let's see what, if that makes it a little more clear. So here, I'm going to reread the same passage, but I'm going to insert the persons of the Trinity. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was also in Christ Jesus, who although Christ Jesus existed in the form of God, Theos, Christ Jesus did not regard equality with God the Father, a thing to be grasped. But Christ Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, doulos, or slave. And Christ Jesus being made, he came to being in the likeness of men. And Jesus being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now for that reason, for this reason also, God the Father highly exalted God the Son and bestowed on God the Son the name, the anoma, the authority, which is above every anoma, name, noma, authority, so that at the name, anoma, authority of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is curios to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so that's a very familiar passage to us all. Now I want to present us with a question. What is the name that is above every name? Jesus? I thought it was Jesus, you know, early on as a baby Christian. Because that's his name, right? What is the name that is above every name? Is it Jesus? Okay. See, I'm making you guys kind of think it through now, right? Here, I'll say, I'll say this. The name that is above every name is not the birth name of Jesus. Now, let me say this way. People are not saved by calling on the birth name of Jesus or Yeshua. 
So the birth name of Jesus, or the birth, you know, or in the Hebrew, Yeshua, you're not saved by his birth name. So when you say, you know, Jesus, that name doesn't save you. Name, and I said in, in, in the Greek, it's a noma, it's authority. So the name which is above every name can be rendered this way. Does this make it a little clearer? The authority which is above every authority. Does that sound better? What's the authority that's above every authority, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth? Now let me ask you, what authority is the highest authority? The Father. Is there any higher authority than God the Father? No. The Father is the name authority above all name, all authority. So the name above every name or the authority above every authority is the authority of God the Father. Got that? And Paul makes this clear when we get to 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse 25. And Paul is speaking about Jesus' role and what he's going to do before he gets everything ready and buttoned up for his Father. We'll pick it up in verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. So you guys know the drill now, right? I'm going to input, insert the persons of the Trinity. Now let me know if this helps. I'm going to read the same passage again. For Jesus must reign until Jesus has put all of Jesus' enemies under Jesus' feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For Jesus has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when Jesus says all things are put in subjection, so when Jesus says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that God the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection to Jesus. When all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to God the Father, who subjected all things to God the Son, so that God the Father and God the Son may be all in all. So the name above every name, or the authority which is above every authority in Philippians 2 passage, is the authority of God the Father. And here's the truth. People are not saved because of the birth name of Jesus. People are saved because of the authority of God the Father that He gave to His Son who died and rose for us. The takeaway from Philippians 2 is God the Father. Remember, He is the authority. And we got to get this. God the Father is at the top. He will always be at the top. How do we know that? We just read 1 Corinthians 15 because the Father gave all authority that He has. He gave it to the Son except for the authority of Himself. The Father is never subjected to the Son. Ever. He never gave that because that would go against who He is in His very being. But because the Father chose to bestow, show favor, He gave freely His authority to Jesus. And He did this, because Paul tells us, because His Son was humiliated and He even humbled Himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore, the Father was pleased to give His Son 
the authority that is above every authority, so that at the title of Lord, every knee will bow, things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that was part of Christ's exaltation. So the name that is above every name or the authority which is above every authority is the authority that the Father showed favor and gave freely to God the Son. And that authority, if we say, okay, what is the authority that, okay, what can we capture that authority? You know, like here in the United States, if, you know, who's the authority of the land? It's the house of the president, right? Or the, whoever sits in the office of a president. President of the United States kind of tells you, okay, you are the most powerful person with authority in this land granted obviously there's the the other forms of government and there's there's a way to do it but as far as that office or title in the same way you go okay what title can be kind of captured of the authority that the father has it's in the title of lord or curios so the father gave the title of Lord or Kurios, and he gave it to his son in his exaltation. So the father, we got to get this, the Kurios title was the father's to begin with, and the father, I guess you can say, lent it to his son. Which brings us to another truth. And don't flip. Let me ask you a question. Who's the greatest in the Trinity? God who? Well done, class. Doesn't that sound a little off? But wait. The Father is the greatest in the Trinity. But wait a minute. Isn't Jesus co-equal with the Father? Isn't that like I've read systematic theology books or theology books that says, oh, well, there's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all equally God. They're all co-equal. They're all co-equal. Okay. Well, first of all, stop trying to put God in a box, number one. What are we learning? The Father is at the top. I'm telling you, when we read the book of Revelation, it is clear who is sitting on the throne. And who, by sitting on the throne, who he decides to give the scroll with seven seals and who was found worthy. Who is everyone in heaven worshiping around the throne? The four living creatures, the 24 elders, the angelic hosts. Who is being worshiped? God the Father. Who is before the throne or around the throne? One who is like slain, like the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, when Jesus was found worthy, to take the scroll, everyone then bowed to Jesus. Folks, the Father is the greatest in the Trinity. How do we know that? Because even Christ Jesus, when He's done, He's he's still subject to the Father. He's always been subject to the Father. So the fact that you're subjected to someone else shows who's greater and lesser, if that makes sense. Now, I'm not trying to blaspheme here of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, He is worthy. He alone is worthy. He is, the, he is the Lord's Christ. He is the Anointed One. He is the Chosen One. He is the Favored One. And because the Father has decided to love His Son and honor His Son in that way, He is equally deserving of our adoration, our worship, and our praise. But the Father is the greatest in the Trinity and and that is demonstrated by just his authority. And he was pleased to give that because of his son's humiliation. And this was demonstrated when the father highly exalted him. So now, this means that the Lord God or the Kyrios Theos 
It is a title and authority that originally belongs to God the Father. Do we get that? He is still the Lord God. Okay, let me say this another way. God the Father, He's the Lord God. He's the Kyrios Theos. He is the authority of all authorities. Because He's given that to His Son, does that mean that God the Father is no longer the authority of all authorities? He still is. He's still the Lord God. He doesn't give that up. But you know He decides to go ahead and give His Son some work to do. To demonstrate His love to Him. And we know that through Philippians 2 that that title wasn't bestowed upon Jesus. Here, we got to get this. Jesus wasn't given that title of Kyrios Theos. He didn't bear that title until after His resurrection and exaltation. And this, this, now when we understand this, this doesn't mean Jesus wasn't great. This doesn't mean Jesus didn't have authority or the authority of His Father or that His Father wasn't in Him. But this helps explain some of the things that Jesus would tell his disciples so or in this case let's say let's go to luke 24 and this is after the resurrection Um, and this was on the road to emmaus Uh, we'll pick it up luke 24 verse 25 and and he said to them jesus spoke "O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary for the christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory wait what does jesus mean and to enter His glory. Isn't He God the Son? He's always been God the Son. But He needed to suffer these things, be crucified, died. That was the pathway to enter into His glory. His humiliation was the pathway to His glory. Then he goes, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. And this also helps explain why when Jesus in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, you know, he said there to his disciples, Jesus spoke these things, verse, verse 1. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Glorify your Son? That the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, the only true Theos, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So here's kind of the case in point. I am the Alpha and the Omega, can be the Father and the Son, but the Father originally. The Lord God begins with the Father, but He gave that authority and that title to His Son. So the first two titles, the Alpha and the Omega, or the Lord God, the Kyrios Theos, they're titles of authority that belong to God the Father. And God the Father, He bestowed, means He gave freely those titles with authority to Jesus His Son. Which is why when you're reading the Scripture, who the Alpha and Omega is, well, it depends on the context because it can go both. We saw that so far. And with this in mind now, I want to look at verse 8 one more time. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, says the Kyrios Theos, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, so who is it? Okay, here, I'll say this. It could be either right now. I am, so if I said, oh, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. We can show that through Scripture. Look, 
God's the, the Alpha and the Omega. That's his title originally. He is the Lord God, the Kyrios Theos. Oh, and him who is, who was, and who is to come. We just learned in verse 4 that that was speaking of the Father. You can argue that it's the Father. And I'm not going to lose sleep over that. But I am inclined to say Jesus. Because at this time, when this quote was made, Jesus was glorified, wasn't he? Then he says, didn't he say, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was? Didn't Philippians 2 already happen? That God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name or the authority that is above every authority? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, things in heaven and on earth or under the earth. So Philippians 2 already happened. And the reason why I'm inclined to say that this is Jesus speaking here is because when you look at verse 7, it was Jesus was coming with the clouds. That was clearly Jesus. So all that collectively, I'm inclined to say, keep it in red. But if it wasn't even colored, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So I'm going to present to you, I, who, who do I think it is? I think it's Jesus. That's saying I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. So now, with that lens, let's look at the phrase, who is, who was, and who is to come. And let's now look at that through the lens of Jesus speaking. Well, him who is, who was, and who is to come. So who is, is the present tense. Who was, is the past tense. And who is to come, is the future tense. And if you read you know, commentaries, when they say, what does this mean, him who is, who was, and who is to come? It'll say something along the lines that, well, it's speaking about God's eternality or something along the lines you know when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush I am who I am it's another way to say well he am he he is who is who was and who is to come something along those lines and that would be an accurate statement but back in verse 4 we concluded that from him who is and who was and who is to come was speaking about not Jesus but the father and so you remember we learned that the father is coming to earth too but we learned and we clarified, well, that's not going to happen until the very end. Until 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus puts everything in subjection to his feet and when he defeats all his enemies, including the last enemy, death. When all that is done and all the judgments are done and Jesus is done doing his work, then the Father is going to come. So back in verse 4, because that was applied to the Father, because the Father is who is, who was, and who is to come. We know that the Father wasn't created. He eternally existed as the Father with the Son. He, he, he is the one who is present. The Father is sitting on His throne in heaven, presiding over all His creation as the Most High God over all creation. And He is also the future. The Father will come after the Son's work is done on earth. But now let's look at this and apply it to Jesus. So Jesus is just like his father, meaning Jesus is also past, present, and future. And this is something that speaks about, you know, Jesus in his deity and his humanity. Jesus wasn't created because he was past. Jesus eternally existed as the son with his father. And we're very familiar with this. Remember the debate he had with the Jews about you know, who he is or where he came from. And he talked about Abraham. And he goes, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And he goes, he saw it. And he goes, you're not even yet 50 years old. 
And yet you're saying, you know, Abraham saw you? And he goes, well, surely I tell you, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am or am me. So Jesus is past. He wasn't created. He eternally existed as the son with his father. And when it says Jesus who was, or who is present, Jesus is risen, glorified, exalted by his Father, and is alive forevermore. Amen? And he's also future. Just like his Father is coming to earth and will come, Jesus will come before his Father. After that, then the Father will come. And as I mentioned, the Son has a lot of work to do for the Father. And once Jesus is done with everything that was written in Holy Scripture, then the Father will come on the scene. So now let's go to the last part of verse 8. Yes. And that's what's interesting. You know, um, I'm like, where's the love of the Holy Spirit in this whole thing? I can tell you, at least going through the book of Revelation, when it's speaking about the scene in heaven and what's going on, it's the Father and the Son, or the Father and the Lamb. And there's living creatures, 24 elders, there's angels. Then there's going to be redeemed. There's nothing about the Holy Ghost. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is not the third person of the Trinity. I'm not saying that. But in terms of who God is manifested in heaven, it's between the Father and the Son or the Father and the Lamb. That's what the Scripture tells us. So I know that maybe some theology books and other stuff saying, well, you know, let's... Well, we've got to treat the Holy Spirit with some love because the Father's getting too much credit, or in some cases in New Testament churches, Jesus is getting too much credit. Let's even them out because they're all God. Well, there's only one God, the Father. And there is one Lord, His Lord, the Christ. And there's one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And the baptism we know is through the Holy Spirit, through God's Spirit. But... What I'm, what, I'm, what I'm finding is, well, you know what? I'm going to let the Scripture dictate who gets the attention and what. And at this point, it's focused between the Father and the Son the whole time. So I'm going to focus on the Father and the Son the whole time. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is their spirit that is enacting and doing everything. And that's His power. And, but in terms of at least persons, actual physical persons, there's the Father and the Son. So like, for example, when we get into the book of Revelation, we're going to see this as when we get past this verse, John is going to describe Jesus, you know, burn. He had, he, what he was wearing, you know, what was glowing, you know, how his eyes were, and his whole attire. They even have that on the, about the Father. We caught that in our vision into Daniel or in some of the Old Testament passages that we've covered. There are some descriptions about one like a man and being described of him. But never have I heard, or if you, or you can share with me, when was the Holy Spirit described as wearing something? Or as, you know, having eyes like this, or a mouth like this, or feet like this, or in his hand had this? It's only the Father and the Son who's described in that way. So I'm going to stay with that. Okay, now let's look at the last. This is the very last phrase or title in verse 8. Almighty. The Almighty. It's in Greek, pantocrator, and it's a compound of two Greek words, which means ruler over all, omnipotent, above every power, strength, and dominion. So when you see the Almighty, 
what's equivalent to that? You can also say the omnipotent one. How many of you know have heard of omnipotent? I know that's some like theological word, but here's the really simplified definition. When you're saying the omnipotent one or the almighty, whoever the almighty is, whoever the omnipotent one is, that person has unlimited power and authority. Unlimited. Unlimited power and unlimited authority. So just like the titles of the Alpha and Omega and the Lord God belong to the Father, there's no surprise to us, the Almighty belongs to the Father too. And let me show you that. In Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, we'll pick it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. And Paul here, he touches on end times in this passage because, as we'll see, there's some descriptions here that are consistent with the vision that John had in the book of Revelation. But we'll pick it up in verse 16 in the latter part of it. Paul writes there, For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord, or Kyrios, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So who is this speaking of? Who's speaking here? When it says, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The father. Remember another clue? If it's talking about a son or daughter relationship, then the, the person of that trinity who's speaking is the father. So here he says, I will be a father to you, says the Lord Almighty. God the Father is the Almighty. So Paul in his epistles, he ascribes the title of Almighty to the Father. Now when we get to the vision of John in Revelation, when we get to chapter 4, there was four living creatures who are around the throne. And those four living creatures, they also apply the title of the Almighty to the Father in Revelation 4. And let me pick it up in verse 8. And this is a scene around heaven's throne. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, is the Kyrios Theos, the Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, and we know that's God the Father, to Him who lives forevermore. So, the title of the Almighty is attributed in the New Testament to God the Father. Should it be anyone surprised? You know Jesus shares that title too. Let's look at this same book in Revelation 15, and we'll pick it up in verse 3. So at this point of the vision, this is the seventh trumpet was blown, and the reaping occurred, the two reapings that we talked about last, last study. We'll pick it up in verse 3. So that happened. And they, and these are those who were victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the o Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. So the redeemed in this vision, they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, and they ascribed the title of the Almighty to who is in the office of king and priest 
that the Father, I guess you could say, created for his anointed one or his Messiah to sit kaitso and preside over, it was, of course, the Lord Jesus. So the King of the nations, the Almighty, here in the Song of the Redeemed, is attributing the Almighty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're, gonna, we're going to look at one more passage in Revelation 19. Now, when we get to this point of the vision, this is when Jesus is coming on a white horse. And we'll pick it up in verse 15. From his, Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword, so that with it, he, Jesus, may strike down the nations. And he, Jesus, will rule them with a rod of iron. And he, Jesus, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written on it, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, or Curios of Curios. So to no surprise that the Alpha and the Omega and the Lord God titles are shared between the Father and the Lord Jesus, the Almighty too is shared between the Father and the Son. So now let's close this up. In verse 8, there were three titles of God in this verse. The Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God, and the Almighty. And all three titles are titles of authority and it belongs to God the Father. Now I'm going to bring a little Bay Area here. Or maybe this is more South LA. Have you ever heard of OG? OG? Original gangster, right? We say, man, that's OG. Well, how about this? Original God. The OG. God the Father is the OG. He is the OG Alpha and Omega. He's the OG Lord God. And He is the OG Almighty. You know who's the little G? His Son. And He's shared His title of Alpha and Omega, the Lord God and the Almighty. And the Father bestowed, He gave freely, He showed favor to His Son. So right now, that's why we call Him the Lord Jesus He presently bears all the titles, all the authority, all the rights, all the privileges, all the honor, and all the glory of His Father. Right now, He is presently bearing all titles and authority, rights and privileges, honor and glory. And the Father is the original Alpha, the original Omega, the original Lord God, the original who is and who was and who is to come. In verse 8, Jesus, I believe he is speaking here, and he's saying pretty much, I am coming in my Father's anoma, my Father's authority. And this helps explain when you read the Gospels. He's like, when you see me, you see the Father. What is he talking about? He goes, the Father is in him, and that his will is to please his Father, and his food is to do the will of him who sent me. And well, how come when Jesus says, when you see me, when he tells Philip, when you see me, you see the Father. Why are you asking me to show you the Father? It's because that the, the titles, the authority that his Father has, he has given it to his Son, and he is actually, the Father is even working through his Son. I know it gets a little confusing, but do you guys get an idea that kind of God's on the Father's on the throne? Is all right, son, go do everything. No, I just said 
Does Gospels tell us the Father is in Christ, reconciling men to Himself. And yet, there is this Father and Son relationship. So Jesus is speaking or coming in the name or the anoma or the authority that was given to Him by His Father. So His Father is the Alpha, the Omega, the one who bears the Lord God, the keys, the Kyrios, Theos. And now, but Jesus, like His Father, now bears that name and bears that authority and bears those titles of His Father. And just like His Father, His Father says, you know, Him who is, who was, and who is to come, the Son says the same thing. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And He comes in the name of the Almighty. So when we get to the book of Re- when we go on from here now, Revelation is going to give us the rest of the details. And the climax, I guess you can see the, the, the pinnacle of the book of Revelation is when Jesus comes to earth, and then when you get to the very end of the book of Revelation, then the Father comes, and then He brings a new Jerusalem with Him. And we'll get into that. So the book of Revelation is really going to give us the details on when that finally happens and when God is going to be here and dwell, with, and dwell among men and He will be with us and He will be our God. It's like, wow, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Come, Lord Jesus. Come in the name and the anoma and the authority that your Father graciously and happily and joyfully gave to you. Amen? Amen. Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church as we continue a deep dive expository study in the book of Revelation. Next week, we look at Revelation 1 verse 9 and the term in the tribulation. And once again, we find that scripture provides a clear and rich explanation of this often misapplied term. Stay with us, and if you've not already, subscribe to the Truth Matters Church podcast on your favorite platform. You can also access all past messages in this study at truthmatterschurch.org. And if you're blessed by the teachings you're hearing, consider supporting Truth Matters Church. You can give online at truthmatterschurch.org give. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.